0: Hello and welcome to another interview on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Paolo Squatriti about his book titled Weeds and the Carolingians, Empire, Culture and Nature in Frankish Europe, AD 750 to 900, which has come out from Cambridge University Press. In the book, um, the book really asks why weeds mattered in the Carolingian empire. I admit, I have full, full honesty. This is not something I had ever thought about until I saw the title of this book, um, and then immediately became fascinated, read the blurb, and then decided I needed to read the whole thing. This was absolutely so many things opened up in my brain from this. Um, So I'm really excited to discuss it on the podcast, because I think that that will be true for a lot of our listeners as well. So Paolo, thank you so much for coming and joining us.
1: Well, thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Could we start off, please, with a bit of an introduction from yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book?
1: Um, well, I'm a professor of early medieval European history, and I teach at um, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan, United States. And uh, there, there is a burgeoning field of early medieval European history, despite the um, it's like my unfamiliar,
0: unfamiliarity yes. with it. <laughs> yes, Fair and
1: um, there, are, especially in England, actually, it's a burgeoning field. But also throughout Europe and Australia is another lively place for those studies. And I've been active in that field for a long time now, several decades. And um, from the beginning of my sort of publication career, I have been interested in environmental sorts of issues, or questions about how people fit into And adapt to the environments in which they the natural environments in which they live and uh, this book is a i guess a continuation of my explorations of um, early medieval european history from an environmental perspective the question about exactly how i got to this um, topic it's an outgrowth of a previous research project that i had I studied the dissemination throughout Europe I guess mostly in Italy but there is a section about the rest of Europe of a particular species of tree namely the sweet chestnut and uh, argued that it was an early medieval invention that in the ancient world uh, chestnuts were not uh, cultivated and were therefore very very scarce and that instead in the early Middle Ages this plant which in ancient literature, Greek and Roman, is very much uh, disparaged and obscure, became instead an an important presence in the woodlands. Anyway, that set up the question of how societies evaluate uh, plants, how they decide that this is a good plant or a bad plant. And obviously, the scale of a chestnut tree, which can be truly magnificent in some cases, um, is not the same as the scale of the smaller generally annual plants um, that I covered in this other book but it's it's sort of the same issue Uh, the issue of how we as people decide that certain plants are worthy and other ones aren't and that's I think the the short answer to the question about how I got to it
0: Mm, That makes a lot of sense Um, and kind of goes very nicely into the very first kind of big question in the book, um, which is that you argue that for the Carolingians, weeds were, I mean, we might think of them as being physically uncontrollable, but you argue that that was probably also true, but that weeds were, quote, intellectually uncontrollable. Why?
1: Yes, it's, uh, yeah, I think you're right that there is a a connection with what I was talking about before, fundamentally, um, I think it's not just the Carolingians, but all uh, all humans are certainly the ones that I know a little bit about. The European ones are are always worried about um, order, about uh, how nature conforms or doesn't conform to their sense of tidiness and um, intellectual comprehensibility and order in the end. So I think that for the the Carolingians, the issue of um, of the intellectual ability to figure out why and how there were these plants that seemed to be operating actively against their economic uh, interests and their, that became a political and also a theological issue. It came down to how come, I guess, there was evil in the world in a certain sense. Why did the beneficent God, whose agent the Carolingians claimed to be, um, uh, permit these pestiferous uh, vegetable creatures to get in their way so so much? And why was it that God, God's good creation was inhabited not just by good creatures, but by these um, um, very difficult to eradicate and often quite damaging plants. So I think that the Carolingian phase of the early medieval period is one in which there are a lot more texts than there had been, say, in the 7th or even early 8th century. And so it gives me a chance to see European Early medieval society uh, generating writing on an issue that I presume had um, exercised their predecessors, but whose texts haven't survived or were never created. And the Carolingian texts, I would say, articulate this ongoing human worry about, does it all make sense? Does nature actually conform to the rules that I think it should? In the Carolingian world, the rule was that God had created it and that God was good and God was on our side. And so then the question emerges, well, then what are all these weeds doing in our fields and in our gardens? How come this bad thing is going on? How come these bad plants seem to prevail. So I think there was an anxiety in Carolingian intellectual culture that derived from a, you know, broader moral, philosophical and theological issue about the presence of bad things in the good world.
0: Mm. What does it mean to, you know, have we done something wrong that this is happening? Or is maybe God not as powerful as we thought? Um, You raise all sorts of kind of very anxiety-provoking questions that it sounds like they were wrestling with. Um, And so I wanted to kind of ask about that, because one of the parts of the debate um, that they seem to have had a lot is, I don't, maybe obsession is a bit too far, but really quite a strong focus on trying to figure out when weeds were created. Why was this such a big deal in sort of the debates around the role and place of weeds?
1: a lot of the sources that i looked at um where i found the the richest veins of information on how carolingian people conceived of bad plants was um, exegesis or commentary on the the judeo-christian story of creation in other words on genesis the first book of the of the christian and hebrew scriptures and um In Genesis, you know, it's actually a bit of a hodgepodge of different versions of how the world came to be. But as you read, if you were to read the text as a single narrative, it emerges that when God had created the plants, uh, he pronounced that they were good, that he liked what he saw. And since, uh, you know, there, there were these plants that as far as the average Carolingian looking out of her, his window could tell, were not good, then that sort of raised the question of where perhaps after that God had finished making this perfect world in the you know six days, in the seventh day he rested, perhaps he had an afterthought and and uh, as I say in the in the book, like a bad architect, he went back to the blueprint and and injected in some uh, retrofitted some uh, weeds because otherwise he wouldn't have said that they were all good. And that was a disturbing thought to Carolingian theologians who didn't like its implications about the imperfection of God's plan. Of the, you know, God had to correct his original work. It's not the way an omnipotent God actually should be behaving. So the Carolingian exegetes Uh, commentators on Genesis didn't like the idea of a kind of second creation of God at some point deciding that he had to go back and correct and amend what he had already created. The likeliest time for that amendment, of course, would have been when God got angry with uh, the humans and expelled them from Eden, from the perfect um, garden where they had originally been um, set up to live. And then weeds might be imagined to have uh, been a kind of a punishment uh, that God inflicted on humans expelled out into the ordinary world where we all find ourselves. But uh, Carol Injansen didn't like that idea, as I said, because it made God seem a little inconstant, let's say. And um, so so they followed the theories that had been articulated in late antiquity in the the very beginning of the 5th century by the greatest uh, Latin theologian of the first millennium, uh, Augustine of Hippo, the North African church father, who had um, proved to everybody's who could read him um, satisfaction that in fact all the plants had been created at the beginning on that third day and it was just because of our human um, greed ultimately, our need to make a living to our desire to accumulate resources that certain plants which were actually, on earth for excellent ecological reasons by god looked to us as farmers basically or as herders uh, to be bad to be weeds and so augustine's explanation of um, the presence of bad plants on earth is enthusiastically adopted by the vast majority of carolingian Uh, commentators who agreed with him that all the plants, including the weeds, were created by God at the beginning. And although we don't perceive them to be good, even the worst weed is in a certain sense good because it is performing some function which we may not understand in sustaining the ecosystem, or at least that's the term that we would use. But in making a habitat for um, birds or for insects that... um, we don't perceive as useful but obviously if you're a bird or an insect um, you would find very useful and so i guess that what's interesting about this um, to me uh, about this uh, exegesis is that it's willing to see the world from a slightly less anthropocentric point of view and to allow that it's only from an anthropocentric point of view that certain plants uh, seem bad and uh, um, it's only from that same anthropocentric that wheat would seem particularly good. Um, and I think that's where the, the Carolingian uh, um, anxieties or troubles and, uh, and the, their, their answers to those anxieties and troubles um, come out of. It's part of a, a longer discourse, a longer conversation in uh, Christian theology about um, about the creation act of God and whether it was completed on the sixth day or whether it had some amendments and some buttressing needed uh, later on after God discovered some things that he hadn't thought of earlier.
0: Thank you for explaining that and kind of how it fits into the wider debates and anxieties. Um, but I want to sort of poke at one of the points, the idea of sort of, well, all of these plants, they might seem troublesome to us, but maybe they have some uses that we don't fully understand. And in fact, you talk about in the book how the vocabulary used by these writers around weeds in a lot of ways reflects this idea of kind of multiple uses and perspectives for these plants. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about um, kind of what the actual language is telling us about these debates.
1: Yes. Um... Carolingian language, as I think you're alluding to, is in a certain way less precise than English, the modern English, which has this word weed, which is unusual as far as I can tell in um, modern languages. Many other modern European languages, anyway, the ones that I know, don't have such a word. In other words, a, a special word that says, that the plant is bad and lumps lots of different kinds of plants under that category. Instead, in, um, in, say, the Romance languages, you would use the same word for plant and and say bad plant. So you would modify the, the word that also qualifies some vegetation as good. The same word gets used. So the Carolingians didn't have a word for weed. What they did was was qualify the word for plant as bad or good. That's how they talked about it. And my study of the subject suggested that there were certain characteristics in plants that led to them being considered bad. And most interesting of all was that the characteristic that's most important is that they get mentioned in the scriptures. In other words... If in the scriptures, plants um, a plant is, is named as a particularly wicked plant, even if the Carolingians lived in a completely different ecology and were probably unfamiliar with that plant, they didn't live in an arid climate in Palestine, they considered that plant very bad. And so since in Palestine, uh, when the scriptures were being assembled in the you know, first millennium B.C. Uh, well, a good defense against browsing, for example, by goats and sheep would be to be very prickly. There's a lot of prickly plants in that area, and they were detrimental to the interests of the humans who live there. So in the scriptures, prickliness is a characteristic of weediness. It's one of the things that makes you almost certainly a weed. And um, that's one of the words that gets used in the Carolingian text to qualify a bad plant. It's that it's prickly. That's one of the characteristics. It's just an example. But it, te- the, the, it tends to be that the words used by the Carolingians are words that have been used in the scriptures to qualify bad plants and the characteristics that they describe um, tend to be characteristics that had been uh, denigrated or looked upon with suspicion a couple of millennia earlier in a completely different uh, ecological context
0: you highlight in fact that there are some instances where um it wouldn't have necessarily it wasn't necessarily clear whether these plants were even things that Carolingians would have actually experienced um themselves they may not have known what they looked like and that that was a whole kind of area of confusion um and all sorts of debates were had on that which i found really interesting
1: um, yes sorry go ahead well no the particularly curious is that there are these um, ca- a category of um, of book the that is mostly used by um, medical practitioners in the early middle ages which are basically lists of plants which can be used and, the, and then their medical properties are qualified. And there's a particularly interesting one that um, seems to be fairly pragmatic. It seems to come out of the Alpine region somewhere in Switzerland maybe and to include plants which are not part of the classical um, medical lore. So you would say, ah, finally, they're being practical. They're they're actually looking outside of their own windows and seeing that there is this plant that the ancient Mediterranean peoples didn't know about that has some medical purpose. So you say, how practical of them. And in that very same manuscript, there are all kinds of plants that have never grown anywhere near central europe or the alpine uh, and of which the medical practitioner would have no experience and wouldn't have access to but they're listed together that's a fascinating um juxtaposition of the immediate the real the practical and the you know perfectly literary and derivative and impractical
0: So I'd love to move to the practical for a moment, um, because one of the things that you look at in the book is not just the debates within the theological community around kind of what is the role of God and what do weeds tell us about the universe, um, but you also look at practically what weeds were showing up for actual farmers in that time period, um, and then very helpfully compare those two things. Um, And we're probably going to discuss that the results really don't go together. Um, But now that we have some sense of kind of what, the educated class, the literary class, I suppose, were um, debating. Can you tell us about practically on the ground, um, what were some of the things that were happening that were changing around Carolingian farming practices that influenced or impacted weeds and vice versa?
1: Yes. One of the um, strokes of luck uh, that I've had in my uh, brilliant career has been the unexpected growth of the science of archaeobotany, which is the extraction of uh, botanical information from archaeological contexts. And 25 years ago, it was virtually uh, unknown or extremely little practice, but nowadays it's a regular practice of archaeologists uh, excavating rural or urban sites to... Uh, try at least, to preserve seeds, traces of pollens, uh, bits of plant that have inevitably ended up in the site and whose size would earlier have excluded them from archaeological consideration. But now with sieving and all kinds of extremely elaborate laboratory analyses, you can have a very complete picture of what plants were most closely implicated with uh, sites where humans settled. What's um, which has given us access to ordinary people and their interactions with plants, which is obviously not the same in the Carolingian period in the 8th and ninth century with what uh, the learned and the privileged and the elite interaction with plants might have been. There are obviously some overlaps, but it's quite different when you excavate uh, a peasant house somewhere in uh, northern France, and get the botanical, archaeobotanical information, it opens a completely new vision of uh, what's actually it's possible to know about. And I tried in this uh, book to include the archaeobotany, which has built up in the last couple of decades, into a respectable corpus of information. The problem is that it's endlessly... Uh, developing. It's, it's a burgeoning field, so it's very difficult to actually keep track of everything that's being excavated and published on the plants that grew in the 8th and 9th century in the Carolingian world. Very difficult to do that. And then also that each uh, site is kind of a story of its own because it's uh, the plants and that grew around there are very much influenced by microecological factors. And so it's hard then to weave all of these microecologies into some kind of coherent narrative. However, I tried to do something uh, synthetic and to look at as many as I could find out about sites and their archaeobotanical discoveries. And the, the the long and the short of it was that most of the celebrity weeds that end up in the texts of the learned are not the weeds that if you had been living in an early medieval village in the Carolingian world would have been of great concern to you. And in particular, you know, the, the sort of poster child of this whole narrative that I'm giving you is the story of um, of Darnell, as it's known in English, of a, um, a a mimic weed a weed which is particularly similar to a wheat and grows at the same time with the same rhythms and resembles it very very closely and which is a celebrity weed in the carolingian period because jesus actually mentions it and so you know since jesus's words don't crop up that often in the gospels if jesus is recorded um, telling a story about darnel that gives darnel Uh, very great importance to um, Christian readers in the early Middle Ages so the texts are full the learned texts are full of reports of terrible things that Darnell is up to and Darnell is instead uh, almost never found uh, there's a few sites two or three where in minimal quantities it seems that Darnell actually may have been in someone's uh, grain field Um, So I guess that the story that I highlighted was the contrast between the weeds of the learned and the weeds that were most probably in the fields of um, the period and and the place of the Carolingian European landscape.
0: So why was there such a big contrast? I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) It seems somewhat odd.
1: It seems odd, yeah. Oh, of course, we also have, we give uh, much more prominence to certain plants that are, in the end, very familiar to us. The, the plants exist both in the imagination and in the and in the ground, right? So there's there's in any society there are certain plants that have disproportionate cultural importance to their actual commonness. In the, but I think that one problem is that. Uh, the authors of the early middle ages in general and the Carolingian ones for sure uh, were talking to each other. Were talking to other learned people and their texts circulated within a fairly rarefied world of texts. And that's really the intended audience, other readers who have the same conventions, the same education, the same expectations as the writer. So it's a kind of a closed uh, circuit. And they don't perceive necessarily the utility of injecting into this closed circuit observations from um, from their direct lived experience. It happens occasionally, but it's not the point of the exercise, really. So the first possibility is that literary sources in the early Middle Ages are not directly Concerned with uh, empirical reality, they're a different thing, right? So that would be one possibility. Um, The other one, of course, is that the archaeobotany is incomplete, and that although we have many dozens of um, of sites excavated. They don't represent what was actually going on. It's also possible that the textual sources are perfectly accurate about what should have been wearing any good uh, Frankish uh, farmer in the 8th and ninth century. Um, I tried to navigate a, a middle ground <laughs> between these two interpretations to su- and to suggest that, yes, uh, it's possible that that Darnell, for example, or some of the other celebrity weeds were more prominent than we actually know and more dangerous and more worrisome. And I also suggested that uh, the the, um, Carolingian writers were not completely uh, removed from reality in that they recognized uh, the um, limitations of uh, humans' ability to deal with, handle, and control vegetable reality, and that in a sense, they were empirical in recognizing the agency and the power of uh, plants out there. And so that even their rarified intellectual discourse was mm, pertinent, uh, was relevant, was in a certain way also based on uh, empirical
0: many possibilities there um, but to make it even more complicated I want to expand out the conversation because so far we've talked about um, the sort of rarefied writers who are in many cases primarily theologians or involved in um, religious life in some way um, and then the farmers actually in the fields going these are annoying plants why are they here and they, those two things don't match but you also talk about um, sort of a third realm I suppose related to this which of course is politics. Um, so, can you explain to us? There were many aspects that weeds seem to come up in political discussions. Um, but to start off with, I'm wondering if you can help us understand why uh, weeds were a political question when it comes to the calendar and time.
1: <laughs> um, one of the things that um, perhaps I should remind. Uh, anybody who happens to be listening um, about is that when uh, an academic book gets written is usually four or five years before it appears in print and therefore you can be interviewed about. So um, I'm not completely sure that I'm able to remember exactly um, the calendrical chapter there, but the let me see if I I'll take I'll make a stab at, at um, as the author at uh, recollecting authoritatively what it was I had to say about time and the passage of time and when weeds crop up, but since the Carolingians were anxious about the proper disposition of time and organizing time properly in a Christian worldview. Uh, Charlemagne especially, but also his successors were concerned about making a uniform calendar for the entire empire, which they constructed laboriously in the late 8th century and then ruled for another few decades into the late ninth century. uh, They wanted everybody to be doing pretty much the same things at the same time, especially worshiping God um, at the same time. And so there's a calendrical reform in which um they invest a fair amount of energy at least around the year 800 a fair amount of energy was invested and it's not a complete failure because some of the carolingian calendrical choices are still reflected in the modern calendar that most of the world goes by today so it's it's not a completely ineffectual um choice but uh charlemagne seems to have not liked the names of the months that were most commonly in circulation especially in the germanic uh, language speaking parts of his empire and to try to update them and in that whole debate about what the right names to give to months ought to be uh, it turns out that there was this um, there was the possibility it seems to be that some people considered the month of uh, August to be uh, the month of the weeds, of the weed month. And Charlemagne didn't like this, and um, he stamped it out or tried to stamp it out. And so uh, from my point of view, what was interesting was that it was possible to imagine that weeds are concentrated in one month, and especially in a month that uh, in most parts of Europe I'm not sure that weeding would have been a high priority in that month, it being past the harvest in almost all parts of Europe. It may that in some remote parts of very cold Europe, they still hadn't harvested in August, but by the time that's a month, oh, by the time it's August, in most places weeding is not a high priority, I would say. So again, it's an example of how the the written discourse, the written text seems to not reflect very precisely the agrarian reality, but still it also is a reflection of the desire of the governing authorities, of the politicians, of the rulers, to impose a standardized and tidy and uh, orthodox um, reckoning and measurement of time and naming of the various subdivisions of time. Um, It's all part of the same story. I got involved in it mostly because of the fact that there is this odd uh, assignment of one qu- one twelfth of the year to the weeds, and um, so I, I speculated a bit as to why that might have been, and um, that's how I got involved in the calendrical issue. I, I did also try to make the observation that although the standard, you know, modern definition of weeds is um, Plants out of place. I suggested that actually, weeds are also plants at the wrong time. Because you know, if if um, a plant that I don't like grows in my field when the field is dormant, it's not quite as weedy as when, if, if that pl- very same species of plant were to spring up in my field at the very moment when I have crops in there. So the we weed, its weediness is actually a function, not just of it growing in that field, but it growing in that field at a specific moment. Um, so there's a time component to weediness and that's also part of the story that I tried to tell. Mm.
0: Yeah, thank, thank you for explaining both of those aspects. Um, as I said, a number of ways in which sort of uh, political questions and how things are organized comes into play. And I'd love to ask about one further, um, which is how Charlemagne was described in accounts at the time, um, among his many accolades, you note that he was also described as being a skilled leader. Why was that an accolade that was considered worth including in the list?
1: that's a good question we should all be good weeders right it's um uh, the ability to discern um and to separate the good from the bad is obviously something that any politician wants to claim to be good at and um and i'm not convinced that it's just struggle. i mean I, I briefly mentioned in the book uh, uh, cuz i was teaching an environmental history class when um about four years ago, the president of France came to visit the president of the United States and they were photographed together with their high-heeled um, respective wives and the front lawn of the, the White House armed with shovels planting a seedling of an oak tree, a tiny little oak tree uh, which then it turned out withered and died, but that wasn't part of what ended up on the front pages of the newspapers. the page, the pictures and the story in the newspaper was this great moment of friendship between the President of France and the President of the United States, macron and Trump, and the fact that they were manfully um, planting a, a, a little oak tree on the front lawn of the White House. so, Politics and plants and planting and the ability of great leaders to manipulate and, and make stuff grow appropriately, I'd say it's not just the Carolingian. it's not just an attribute of Charlemagne. We still like our leaders to be in control of the vegetable world. This particular seedling, it turned out, was from some forest in some place where large numbers of um, American GIs were killed in the First World War. And uh, so it had a symbolic meaning, but still, the, that meaning, I think, was subordinated to the fact of the two men with shovels planting a specific kind of plant in a specific place. Uh, that's all the, the ruler as manipulator of the vegetable world. And I think that's what the propaganda value to Charlemagne as being the weeder-in-chief of the Carolingian Empire was that he was carrying out the the separation of the good from the bad plants and taking care of his realm in a way in in, in this rhetoric because i'm not sure that charlemagne ever weeded anything but in the in the text when he is represented that way that's the point it's the point uh, that he is the man who uh, reestablishes edenic uh, harmonies and uh, edenic um, um, perfect relations between plants and people through his interventions um, of um, separation, uh, which are all based, of course, on a very acute and um, insightful discernment and ability to identify this is the good one, that one is the bad one, and therefore they must be separated. Uh, that's, I think, the, the ultimate um, political complement. That you can uh, um, pay to Charlemagne by, by calling him uh, an excellent weeder, And that I think if, if I recall correctly what you're referring to, that particular piece of program also suggests that he was doing his weeding with a sword.:
0: Yes, I which, believe uh, so, which is uh, an interesting methodology to weed.
1: <laughs> I've never done it, but yeah, it's, it's probably not easy. It takes special skill to do your weeding with a sword. But obviously there's a martial component to, to that story, to um, how he's depicted. He's not just the weeder in chief, but he's also a great military leader. And that same piece of propaganda, which is actually not Carolingian's, it's, it's a little later, but um, the poem that where that appears, that the, the song where that appears, um, also goes on and on about how he, laid low vast armies of people using a sword so the weed and this and the and the human enemy are kind of assimilated there
0: so that kind of confirms the idea that there are good plants and bad plants and as you said the discernment is figuring out which is which Um, and in a lot of ways the kind of the fact of the sword being the implement sort of suggests that kind of once you're bad that's the end of it Um, redemption does not happen like it is a fatal thing to be bad um but you also show in the book that throughout these debates particularly in the um educated writing class um there's as we spoke about already kind of some some amount of ambivalence or mixed different understandings about weeds and maybe it's human ignorance to not fully understand god's purpose with some of these plants etc um but you also talk about in the book that there are in these debates ways for weeds to become good, to rise above their status. Um, can you maybe tell us about kind of what that process looked like to these writers and why they were discussing it?
1: Yes. Um, I think that in a way, the the f- weediness being a, a, a matter of place and time, if the bad plant happens to grow in the right place and at the right time, it can sort of rehabilitate itself. It can become acceptable. So in the learned discourse, there is, in the very same books that sometimes condemn a plant as a wicked, wicked plant because it it has some scriptural association that are bad, you can then find, sometimes bound together in the same manuscript, a herbal that would be a text about, the medical properties of plants, which extols the curative properties of the very same plant. So there it's a matter well, in the scripture, if Jesus said that it's a bad plant, obviously it's a very, very bad plant. However, we've also noticed that um, if you gather it in the woods at the right time of the year, this plant cures you of X. And so there's there's a kind of a medical rehabilitation of plants that can happen. And then in the early Middle Ages, there's also a, a kind of an ascetical rehabilitation. that so I mentioned earlier that early medieval people found prickly plants particularly distressing. That's the worst kind of weed is, is darnel, but second is any kind of prickly plant. And instead, there are lots of uh, ascetics uh, who use the prickly plant to mortify the flesh and find that it actually improves their uh, their uh, closeness to God. It makes it easier for them to commune with the divine. And so the prickly plant can have a kind of a, a, spiritual, uh, a spiritual betterment effect. Uh, so medical, ascetical literature uses plants, which normally would be considered terrible um, in uh, in most contexts, uses them at just the right time and just the right place uh, to uh, produce good effects. And in those cases, the, the plant rises through the ranks and becomes perfectly acceptable. There's a couple of examples of how, I guess there's a a kind of mobility um, on the scale that vegetable life has. It can go up and down in our estimation. And um, and early medieval people were aware of that, even though they were perfectly terrified by darnel and all the bad things that it could do to you, as um, Jesus had spelled out. They also understood that darnel, in certain circumstances, might have uh, some improving effects on us. And so it's it's really a matter of, um, as you said, discernment, but also a matter of time and place. It's how and when and where you use the plant that um, determines whether it's going to be a bad one or a good one. Mm.
0: That makes sense. That is, as you already said, a much more nuanced position on weeds than perhaps we have either in English Um, or today we're walking out into a garden going why Um, but clearly these debates um, yielded rather a lot of discussion that um, evolved and developed as it went on rather than just repeating itself for centuries so that's really interesting and helpful for having you explain so thank you very much for that being cognizant of time um, and also of um, things evolving I'm wondering, as our final question for this interview, if you would maybe be able to share with us, um, now that this book is published, what you might be working on now or next? (laughs)
1: Um, Well, yeah, we're one of the, since uh, I'd say since the 80s, probably academics are not allowed to say I'm not doing anything. I'm just dead wood. We're always supposed to be on to the next, and but I am. I think um, uh, right now I've got a small project that I'm working on. My next big one is going to be about um, Rome, which is my hometown, and uh, and its river. I'd like to write about how, during the early Middle Ages, the relationship between the city and the Tiber changed compared to earlier or even later, um, fundamentally, the argument would be, it's a bad sign that I haven't done the research. and I already have my argument, but the, the um, argument is going to be that the f- the course of the Tiber, the the flow of it, basically from north to south, was reversed in the early Middle Ages in a certain sense, and that the um, importation of foods into the metropolis that had been the main function of the Tiber in the Roman period stopped. And instead, um, food was no longer being moved from the sea to Rome upstream, south to north. But instead, what did go into Rome was with the flow of the river and came from a much uh, smaller geographical basin, let's say, from a much more localized. So that would be the larger project. But right now, I actually am working on something related to the weeds, um, I've become interested in the composition of the Eucharist, in other words, of the piece of bread which Christians still today and certainly in the early Middle Ages uh, um, used in the commemorative ritual central to their practices of, on Sundays, right? Um, and I've noticed that in the period between roughly 400 and roughly 1,000, in other words, during the early Middle Ages, the recipe uh, for making this this, um, special bread uh, changes radically. And I've started wondering how come uh, that was the case. In other words, at the very beginning of the period, people could make the Eucharist out of any old flour. It didn't matter. It didn't have to be particularly finely sieved. It didn't matter what color of the flour was. It could be slightly gray, slightly yellow. It could be made out of barley, it could be made out of all kinds of different grains. And then actually in the Carolingian period in the ninth century, people start getting increasingly uh, strict about how you make this uh, concoction, how you make this bread. And they become much more worried about it being very, very pure flour and being exclusively wheat. In other words, the body of God will not be present if you have even a single grain of barley ground in there by mistake. And this big transformation, this this uh, shift towards um, a much more finely sifted, much more white, much more lightly baked, much more wheaten um, Eucharist, I'm trying to understand the relation between the new recipes that start to emerge, and uh, ecology. I'm trying to figure out if there's something going on in climate history, if there's something going on in agricultural history that would explain why uh, Christians suddenly couldn't find God except in a very, very finely sifted, pure, wheaten Eucharists. That's my current um interest.
0: Well, both of those projects sound absolutely fascinating. So thank you for giving us sort of a sneak peek as it were into them. Um, I think there will be a lot of people, certainly myself included, who will be interested to see what happens with that. Um, But while you are off investigating uh, wheat and what goes into the Eucharist, as well as uh, Rome and its river, um, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled Weed and the Carolingians, Empire, Culture and Nature in Frankish Europe from Cambridge University Press. Dr. Paolo Squatriti, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. And it, it is not weed in the Carolingians, but weeds. And it's an important distinction.
0: <laughs> an important distinction. Very well. Thank you very much.
1: OK, thank you. Bye bye.